coronation. It's the ceremony when a, king, a new king is officially installed to his post as a ruler. Now, a coronation is a ceremony that's full of pomp, it's full of pageantry and celebration. This is not something that we do here in the U.S. We're not familiar with coronation because we were founded on the idea that we don't want a king. That's how we started. But in that coronation moment, the new king is ordained for the task of leading the people. They're crowns. They hold a scepter in their hand and they begin their reign. The moment is significant. Well, God has already performed the ultimate coronation. He has set his king on his throne and all of the world must either submit to him or be destroyed by him. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We're going to be setting up camp there this morning. And as you're turning there, I do want to let you know that throughout the month of December, uh, we are taking up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering is an offering that Southern Baptist churches all across the United States, we gather our funds together and 100% of what is given goes directly to the International Mission Board and sends missionaries to the field. Last year, I was in South Africa in Johannesburg uh, and I was in Cape Town and I saw the work of our International Mission Board where they're planting churches, they're baptizing new believers, the gospel is going forth. And so when you give to Lottie Moon, it's a great way to continue to advance the mission of the gospel all around the world. Now we're going through a sermon series as a faith family leading up to Christmas and it's entitled, The King Has Come. The last two weeks, we've looked at different Old Testament passages of scripture and how they're pointing us to this king who would come on Christmas morn. Two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 9, 6, where there will be a child born to us and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I think my son just quoted it a whole lot better than I just did. And then last week we looked at Jeremiah 23 where the Lord promised a coming days when he would raise up a righteous branch for David. And this new king, he's going to be called the Lord our righteousness. Now today when we get to Psalm 2, it's a psalm that is written by King David about himself. But ultimately this royal psalm is pointing us to the greater King David. What's interesting to me is that Psalm 2 is quoted 18 times in the New Testament, more than any other psalm. These 12 verses are pointing us to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, King Jesus is divisive. Those, there are those who reject him and then there are those who receive him. There are those who hate him and there are those who love him. Well, notice in the text First, I want you to see this. Unbelievers reject the king. Unbelievers reject the king. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? David's tone is that of why even bother to fight against God? What's the point? Any and all fighting against the one who controls all things is futile. In fact, the evidence of God's patience towards unbelievers is seen in his common grace that he extends to unbelievers. God gives a beating heart to those who hate him. 
He provides food for those who seek to destroy his church. He made the lips of those who curse his name. If you wanna see the, the benevolence of God in which he extends grace and patience even to those who have yet to trust in him, we see it in the way that he treats even unbelievers. But furthermore, the kings of the earth, verse two, they take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That phrase conspire together, it means to get ready for war. Now remember, in context, David, he's writing about himself. The Lord, back in 1 Samuel 16, through the prophet Samuel, anointed David to be king over Israel. And as we see throughout his reign as king, David had other kings and other rulers and other nations who sought to destroy him and Israel. In 1 Samuel 17 and 19, in 2 Samuel 5, we see David go to war with the Philistines. You go to 1 Samuel 27 and we see David and Israel fighting the Geshurites and the Gezrites and the Amalekites. And then the Philistines, they wanted some more of David. Even though he kept defeating them, they thought, well, we're going to go back and pick another fight with him. And so in 2 Samuel 8, they bring Moab and Syria and they bring Edom and Zobah and all these other nations. They rise up together. They conspire together to go after King David, to go after Israel, to go after the anointed one. Kings and nations were rising up against the Lord and rising up against David. But there is another who would come after David. The true anointed one, the true Messiah, the true Christ. And there would be those who conspired against him. Do you remember Herod and Pilate and how they were enemies? They just had disdain for one another until they had a common enemy, Jesus. And in fact, in Luke 23, we see where these two rulers, these two types of kings, they conspired together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And in fact, you see there in Luke 23 that at the end of the, the passion in which they are putting Jesus on trial, these two enemies, they become friends because they have a mutual enemy. The early church, they knew this. And so they connected Herod and Pilate together as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. In Acts chapter four, the early church, they were gathered together and they were praying and listened to what they prayed to the Father. They said, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Do you see it right here in the text? It's these unbelieving kings, these unbelieving rulers rejecting King David. And that is a foreshadowing of kings and rulers who reject King Jesus. You see, Psalm 2 was written 800 years before Jesus was even born. God was foretelling what was about to happen and it wasn't just Herod and Pilate who were rising up against Jesus and these Gentile leaders. It was the Jew Jewish rulers as well. 
The Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing council, they despised Jesus and they were the driving force to have him crucified. When Pilate said, what should I do with him? They were there crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, unbelievers reject Jesus as king. It was the late third century that Roman emperor Diocletian was persecuting the church. He hated Christians because Christians were declaring that there was a greater emperor, there was a greater king, and they would not bow their knee to any earthly government, even to the point of losing their own lives. So to revel in his own power and to boast in his own glory, Diocletian, he erected two pillars in Spain in honor of himself. And one of them says this, for having extended the Roman Empire in the, west, in the east and the west, and watch this, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. <laughs> oh, I love this. Oh, this is so, so good. Okay. The Lord sits in heaven and he laughs at this. Okay, Diocletian, he constructed altars to flex his muscle over the annihilation of Christians, and yet he is dead, Rome is gone, and the church of Jesus Christ is still marching forward. Make no mistake over this. Please see, kings will rise up against Jesus, and he says, no, sir. You will not rise up against me. I will march forth. You see, neither Diocletian nor a pagan sultan or an atheistic college professor or an ISIS soldier who's declaring jihad can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. King Jesus rules and reigns over all things and he cannot be stopped. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel that we have good news to declare to the world and it all began with a little baby king born in Bethlehem. Behold this Christmas, behold your king. But then notice in the text, the divine reaction to this human rebellion. So number two, God coronates the king. He coronates the king. Look at verse four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Lord, the one who is enthroned in heaven, the one who is high and exalted, the one who sits upon his throne, he looks at how evil threats rise up against him. In verse four, he laughs. He mocks those who rise up against him. Like, what, what are you gonna do to me? You, you think you can conspire and I can't hear you? You think you can make plans and I can't stop you? The Lord laughs. It's, 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 it's hilarious. Like, what, what are you thinking? You think you can rise up against me? Beloved, if the Lord laughs at the plans of the wicked, should you and I worry when our lives seem to be falling apart? Should you worry when you watch the news? Should you wring your hands in fear about the future? 
The Lord is seated on his throne and he laughs at the plans of the wicked. You do not need to fear. He will take care of his children. And this king here, he ensures that there is absolutely nothing outside of his control. We do not need to worry or be dismayed because our great God and king, he sits upon his throne in verse four. He laughs at the plans of the wicked. But then the Lord speaks to them in his anger. What does he do? Verse five, it terrifies them in his wrath. When God speaks in anger, people go hide for cover. When you were a kid and you were in trouble, did your parents ever use your middle name? You know that moment where you, you did something wrong and then all of a sudden they take your first name and then they throw in the middle name. Now, I have four names. Uh, my parents gave me four names. My name is Kenneth Preston Murray Bruce. So with these four names, uh, I, I grew up. So when I only heard Kenneth, I thought, no big deal, I'm okay. But when I heard Kenneth Preston Murray Bruce, and he was like a run-on sentence, right? <laughs> I was like, I'm dead. It is over. Like, I need to start giving out my baseball cards. I need to just give away things because this is, I'm not going to make it through this. Okay, so now take that feeling. Take that feeling right there and multiply it times, times God's wrath. That's verse five. You take the Lord speaking in anger. He is terrifying people in his wrath. He has a word and his enemies fear. Notice the Lord's progression. There's laughter, then there's ridicule, then speaking in holy anger. He's saying, <laughs> you're gonna rise up against me, you're a fool, and then watch this, verse six. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So now here, the Lord is saying, I'm gonna give you something to worry about. The very thing that you are trying to stop, verse two, the very thing you are trying to keep from happening, verse three, it's already done, verse six. He is already seated in his place. The war is over. God has already done what the enemy is trying to prevent. And while they are breathing out fury, while they are preparing violence against the Lord and against his anointed one, he pronounces, my king is already in his place. Jesus reigns. Jesus sits on his throne of grace. He sits on the throne of power and he is ruling and reigning over all things. It's as if the Lord is saying, it's too late. The coronation's already taken place. My king has already taken his seat upon the throne and there is nothing you can do about it. But then, verse seven, the anointed king speaks. The son has a word. He says, verse seven, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. So the king seated upon his throne makes a declaration regarding the privileged relationship between the father and the son. You see, throughout his earthly ministry, the we see with Jesus, the father continually affirmed the son. 
we see uh, different New Testament writers who will take this Psalm 2, verse 7, and they'll apply it to Jesus. So Hebrews 1, verses 5 and 6, they take this verse in verse 7 and they apply it to the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. We see the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all, at Jesus' baptism, they take verse 7 and they apply it to Jesus where the Spirit of God falls upon Jesus as he is raised up out of the water and the Father speaks in affirmation of the Son. And when she says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We see with Jesus when he is up on the mountain with Peter and James and John and he is transfigured. He takes on a temporary glorified body and they behold his glory and the three disciples face plant in light of who he is and they hear a voice from the father saying this is my son listen to him and then you get to acts 13 where paul takes verse 7 of hello paul takes psalm 2 verse 7 i'm such an animated preacher y'all Th- crazy things happen up here okay i like to move i can't sit still I'm so excited. So Acts 13, verse 33, Paul says this, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. You see, Christmas... And Easter are pointing us to the coronation of Jesus. Our God has come. Our king is seated on his throne. He is high and exalted. What an amazing king we have. And Revelation 7 tries to describe and says blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. So this Christmas, be amazed by this baby in a manger. Be overwhelmed with this mighty God who has come to take on flesh like you and I. Indeed, our king has come. But then notice verse eight. The father makes a promise to his son. He has a gift that he wants to give to his son, a coronation gift, and it's the nations. All peoples from across planet Earth will come and bow before King Jesus. And for any who rise up against the true king of Israel, he will dash them to pieces on the last day. Now, I feel like as we're going through this series, we're kind of like fine jewelers and we're holding up the most beautiful diamond and we're looking at it from different perspectives and we see new beauty and new truth and we behold this wonderful item in our hands. And so as you and I are together beholding this king, we're looking at his authority, his kingly authority in different ways, different angles. Verse nine is one that we are not familiar with. This is a verse that many people stay away from. They don't like this type of Jesus. They like the Jesus who is love, and he is. 
They like the Jesus that plays nice, but they don't like this right here, verse 9. You see, the iron rod is deserved and it's reserved for those who do not submit to the king's authority. You see, those who are his inheritance, you and I, those who believe the gospel, his kingly authority, he will not swing his iron rod at us. He will deal with us with gentleness and with grace. But for those who reject the gospel, there is coming a day, verse 9, in which the scepter in his hand, as the king of the world, he will swing it and he will dash his enemies to pieces. Before you and I look down our noses, though, on unbelievers, we got to remember that used to be us. Before you and I came to know Jesus, we were, Ephesians 2, objects of wrath. We were, Romans 5, enemies of God. We were, Colossians 1, we were separated from him and we deserved wrath. But then we heard the gospel. We heard about Christmas morning where God sent forth his son And he grew up and lived the life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved. And he was buried, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he comes back to life. So anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him will be saved from God's wrath. Because the good news of the gospel is that all of God's wrath was placed upon Jesus at the cross. So you and I, who are now hidden in Christ, we no longer have to absorb God's wrath. Jesus did it for us. This is the gospel that we have believed, and it has changed us. If you are in Christ, you have gone from rejecting the king to receiving the king. You are now one in which you say, he is my master. He is my Lord. He dictates my future. I now follow him. You see, before we know Christ, with pride in our hearts, we declare, I, I don't want a God telling me what to do. I want to live my own life. I want to go my own way. I don't want a king having authority over me. I don't want a God telling me what to do. I want to be my own God. It's the posture of all of our hearts before we know Jesus. But then you believe the gospel. You trust in Jesus. You see, the king holding the iron scepter has nail-pierced hands. King Jesus took the iron scepter of God's wrath at Calvary so that you might become, verse 8, his inheritance. His eternal possession. At the cross, Jesus was shattered to pieces so you don't have to be. Jesus took the full swing of God's wrath so that you don't have to receive it. The beauty of the gospel is that we see a God who loves his people and wants to draw all people to himself. He's not slow in keeping his promises, 2 Peter 3, 9, but he desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to know him. Do you see how much he loves you? 
Do you feel the weight of, and the significance of Christmas? Oh, that you might run to King Jesus before it's too late. If you're not in Christ, oh, run to Jesus. Because this is what's coming. If you do not bow before a King Jesus, one day with one sway of his scepter, you will be destroyed. So what do we do? It's number three. Therefore, pledge allegiance to the king. Pledge allegiance to the king. Verse 10, the Lord gives a warning to kings. Be wise. He says, receive instruction. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Watch this. Pay homage to the sun, verse 12. Some translations say kiss the sun. So what's, what's our response to the exalted king of kings? The call is to pledge allegiance to the king. So this Christmas, will you submit to the little baby king in a manger? Will you bow your knee to the greater King David, to the good shepherd born in Bethlehem? Will you pay homage? Will you kiss the son or will you reject him? If you choose to reject him, look at verse 12. He will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. So how do you escape God's wrath? You kiss the Son. You trust in Jesus. You believe the gospel. You see, God is interested in a personal relationship with you. And so when you kiss the sun, the sun kisses you back. If you serve the sun, the sun serves you back. God is interested in you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he proves it on Christmas morning and on Good Friday and on Easter morning. We see the love of God displayed in his son, but you must not wait until it's too late. If you do not know when your last breath will be, which is true for us, don't wait. Don't wait. Do not delay. Pledge allegiance to King Jesus. Open your heart. Trust in him. Believe the gospel. The truth of the text is this, kiss the son and be saved or reject the son and be damned. That's the point of Psalm 2. In verse 12, it's believe in Jesus and flee from the wrath to come. Jesus says it like this in John 3.36. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Westwood, do we feel the urgency of evangelism? You and I, we have family, we have friends, we have coworkers and neighbors who do not know Jesus. And, and we, we need to see them come to know Christ. We do not want them to be there to receive the iron scepter. We want them to believe the gospel. 
And God has strategically placed you and I in our communities, on our ball teams, in our workplaces as missionaries. All of us looking to impact our world for Jesus. And God has placed you in your area of influence to point people to Jesus. And we, this is the impact point. It's this Christmas, this Christmas, invite your friends and family to trust King Jesus. We're gonna be gathered around Christmas trees and opening presents and eating food and having fun. This is a sweet time, but let's not forget the opportunity to point people to Jesus. Because apart from him, it looks really, really bad. So here, here we are, faith family. You have this king who's high and exalted, seated on his throne. The question is, have you believed? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? When Christy and I first got married, I got a job as a bank teller. I was going to seminary. I was working at a church as an intern in youth ministry. And I was working as a bank teller trying to make ends meet for our new family. And one day, a man walked in with a mask. And he handed an envelope on the counter and said, fill it up. So I grab the envelope, I fill it up with money, and I slide it back to him. I did this. Hands up. Surrender. I was communicating to this robber, you have control of my life. You dictate my future. Well, the call to come to Christ is this. You throw your hands up and say, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm not holding on to my past. I'm, I'm letting go of everything. I'm not a threat to you. I'm submitting my life to you. But the one that you're submitting your life to is not someone who's out to hurt you. He's out to save you. And this Christmas, you can truly come to know that baby personally by surrendering your life to him because your king has come for you.